This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. This week, our guest is Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Global Harvest Initiative, a private sector policy voice that is forging solutions to feed the world. Together with its member companies and consultative partners from the conservation, international development, and university sectors, GHI is advancing key policies and practices that will help provide the food, feed, fiber, and fuel we need as our global population rises to 9.7 billion in the coming years. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Andy Levine of the American Seed Trade Association next. The Global Harvest Initiative's 2015 GAP report, Building Sustainable Bread Baskets, showcases the vital role of U.S. agriculture in providing domestic and global food security. The GAP report provides a special focus on the productivity of U.S. farmers and ranchers and the legacy of our conservation agriculture system. We must continue to grow solutions that conserve natural resources, adapt to consumer needs, and improve the economic vitality of producers and rural communities. The GAP report also shines a spotlight on Zambia, a country that is diversifying its agriculture production systems to build its capacity as a regional breadbasket in southern Africa. With the right policies, innovations and practices, we can improve productivity, waste less, and conserve our precious resources here at home and around the world. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. There were wins and losses for the food and agriculture industry in the final tax and spending legislation this year. Andy Levine, president and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association, says the approved policy included tax reform that will help the seed industry and its customers. The research components are always always key to the communities that have extensive research investments like the seed industry and in, in new innovations. And so that certainty to make investments today and how they will be dealt with down the road in the tax policies is absolutely key. And then the capital investments, we, we realize that everybody has to continue to improve the, the equipment they have, the facilities that they have, and any research equipment that they use. And so that certainty in tax policy not only helps us and our companies, but farmers and others down the food chain as we go through this. So it's key that we have that, and Congress really took a strong step and continue to provide those tax clauses for agriculture and for research and capital. One element that was not in the omnibus was a voluntary GM labeling standard. Andy, I can understand the food industry and those who manufacture and, and provide food for grocery store shelves, why they would have concern. But where does the American Seed Trade Association stand with that? Well, we play a role in this. Obviously, we are part of that beginning decision that the farmers make, and then they sell the food, the, the crop that they grow into the food chain, and it's processed and then put on our tables. And so it, we are an integral part of that uh, that overall chain, and we need to make sure that our voice is heard in that. Our companies do provide uh, GMO crops, they are seeds for those crops, and we have to be able to provide uh, our support for America's farmers and for the science that's behind GMOs. And so we felt we needed to play a role that showed that we support what the industry is trying to do and how we're trying to get legislation that is a consistent policy across the U.S. and is not broken down into one for each 50 states. The set of laws that will be enacted in 2016 in Vermont, are they only for food? No, they aren't. It's a lot broader than just food, and it does include seed. And so our concern, while 
seed companies do label their products for their farmer customers, each state would likely require a, a different type of label or process, and that just would be unacceptable for us too. So we wanted to make sure that as they go through this, it's, it's really defined in how it's done across the country. You have members of your association that produce organic seed. You have others that are commercial and genetically enhanced, and you have some members that produce them all. How do you keep all the people together, and how do you keep your association together? Well, what we like to say, Jeff, is we don't want to pick our favorite child in this issue. Uh, our companies produce seed that the growers or their customers want for the specific production practices that they use. And whether it's organic or conventional or, or biotech, those products are based on good, sound, strong varieties or germplasm so that those seed is going to perform no matter what type of technologies in it or on it. Whether they're seed treatments or whether they're uh, biotech traits, it's important that uh, what we do is we provide that good, strong foundation, which is the seed, for that technology to uh, have the impact it's supposed to have. Are there definitions within your ranks of what is truly organic, what is conventional, and what is genetically engineered? You know, I think there are they're just understood by everyone. You know, organic is, is what the National Organic Program states that it is. Conventional is what we would consider breeding uh, today, what is, what is produced. Obviously, biotech is uh, those products or those seed varieties that have a trait in them that goes through that regulatory structure. That's the coordinated framework. So it, it really is accepted, uh, I think, across the agriculture community, and we really don't have a lot of debate at that, on that uh, issue at all, Jeff, in, in our uh, association. As was proposed in the debate for 2015, there was a discussion of a GMO-free certification from the Department of Agriculture. What would, what would be your counsel on that? Well, they do that now as far as going through that certification of production practice uh, on any type of food that they've got out there or certified process that people use to produce food. So um, the only thing that we want to make sure is there's not a confusing um, structure set up out there so the consumer doesn't understand what they're looking at or what they're buying. Uh, a big challenge right now, Jeff, as we look at it, is that issue of natural. How do you define natural? Well, it really is in the eye of the beholder, and people now just use it as a marketing tool instead of as an actual, uh, this is natural, this is processed. So it, it is... a the big concern that we have is let's have a standard that says when you go GMO-free, this is all of these products meet that classification and they're certified by this program. Congressman David Young last week when discussing what might be ahead for Congress in 2016 suggests the biggest challenge could come from congressional action or inaction. If you were providing counsel to Washington on this particular debate about a voluntary program from GMO labeling, what would you suggest? Well, there's a number of things. As, as we went through the omnibus discussions and, and uh, interactions with the leadership in the agriculture community in the Senate and the House, was how do we have this conversation as early as possible uh, next year? And that means next month, in January. We've seen the Secretary Vilsack is going to try to pull together the parties next month to have a a civil discussion uh, on what possibilities may be for a resolution of this. And uh, there's been commitments from Chairman Pat Roberts of Kansas and, and Ranking Member Stabenow from Michigan that there will be uh, good discussion on this as early as January and hopefully finding a resolution as quickly as possible. 
we can't go into March and April without some resolution or companies are going to have to start uh, changing their supply lines, changing their distribution, changing their labels, and it really is going to become a very, very difficult situation across the food chain. Do you get any sense from the White House of where they stand on a national standard? You know, I don't think Secretary Vilsack, Jeff, would have gotten out there like he did to make this commitment publicly and in the media if that had already been run up the flagpole to the White House. So I think they realize the importance of having a national policy on this instead of a diverse 50-state policy. So um, I think there's support all the way up through the White House to have a balanced uh, program. And I think uh, Ranking Member Stabenow has been talking very closely with the White House as well. Some were very concerned that while they realized there was a need for a voluntary labeling standard, uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp said she had a problem with federal law overstepping the state standard. Yeah, and, and we've heard that discussion some, and there are always cases where you ha- have a national policy versus a, just a state-by-state policy. And I think we've looked at this in a lot of cases, and the one that I always bring light to is back 10 or 12 years ago, the organic community actually wanted a national policy because it, cha- it differed so much state-to-state. And now we're in a very, what I would say, a very similar situation in realizing that you can't have a policy that differs state from state. And I, most of the commissioners of agriculture that we've talked to, the state commissioners, realize that, and they prefer a national standard as well. So I think that's somewhat of a, I hate to call it a red herring, but it's somewhat of a, a, a roadblock that people like to throw out to not have something happen instead of trying to find a solution that uh, fits uh, the, the nation as a whole. So while the focus here is on our own domestic, um, uh, the the domestic and consumer acceptance of genetically enhanced crops or ingredients that come from genetically enhanced crops, Andy, we also have to have acceptance from the global community with regard to seed and to traits, and that has been a roadblock for this industry from time to time. You know, it really has. As we've gone through this internationally, you see any number of international health and governmental organizations, whether it's in Europe or across the world, looking at the safety of of the uh, genetically modified crops and declaring them you know, similar or the same as the conventional crops. And it's not an issue in most of these places of that concern from the government it's an issue of um, uh, not basing their policy on science, but basing it on public opinion. And while we realize that that's the direction that some countries are going to go, it is sort of um, a situation where you have the government saying, yes, they're safe, yes, they're similar to uh, conventionally produced, we don't see a difference. However, we're going to do this because there's a, a loud minority or a loud even, uh, you know, 50% that says they want it labeled. And so... It's a challenge when you when you have to deal with that, and, and the, the beauty, I believe, of the U.S. system is we stay science-based and realizing that you're not going to please everybody uh, in these situations. For a period of time now, we've been able to evaluate the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What makes this deal unique as it pertains to plant genomics and, and seed technology? I would say the biggest thing when we talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership is that recognition of biotechnology. It's the first time that it's been given any significant mention in a trade agreement of this size. And what it really does is, is it, it encourages the countries that are involved in the TPP to provide uh, transparency to their programs, 
uh, share information on how to deal with low-level presence of uh, biotech material uh, in, on, in food products that have not been approved yet in their country to try to get them expedited so that they don't either have to divert a shipment or destroy a shipment. So that's really a, a key one in this trade agreement that we see that we really appreciate that our government worked very hard for. You have already been working with our customers and working with the rest of the globe on acceptance of technology. How would this TPP deal help to advance that preliminary work? Well, I think given that our our trading partners in Europe aren't involved in this one, they're going to see that other parts of the world really do want to um, uh, set a strong path in reviewing and approving these products and allowing not only the food from these products or the feed from these products to come into the marketplace, but giving their farmers the opportunity to use the technologies to improve their lot in life and improve the food they, they supply to their citizens. So there's going to be a higher awareness there that um, these things are tried and tested and will continue to be improved as, as uh, um, more countries and more farmers adopt them. For more than a decade, the American Seed Trade Association and your members and partners have been waiting for the U.S. Senate to ratify the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. Any clues to what's the holdup? Yeah, the International Treaty for Plant Genetic Resources is really... Um, I guess it's that international roadmap for plant breeders to deal with uh, breeding opportunities, to look at varieties in other countries, to bring varieties back to the U.S. and breed with them to help improve our germplasm uh, system here and our germplasm banks here in the U.S., as well as uh, for other countries. So it sets that transparent roadmap on how people will access genetic resources, how they'll pay for genetic resources in an attempt to improve gene banks, plant gene banks around the world. And so this really is a very specific treaty, uh, specifically impacting plant genetic resources in how you would access those genetic resources in the contracts that would be signed between governments. So it, it's um, it's one of those very few people have heard about it, unless you're in the plant breeding community. How is this affecting your industry while you continue to wait for this to be done? Right. Well, until the U.S. Senate adopts the treaty or ratifies the treaty, um, the U.S. is not part of the global discussion on plant genetic resources and the, the movement across throughout the world. There are, we are trying our attempt, the attempt is to set that international standard. And if we can't be a voice of reason at that table, we've got probably the strongest or one of the strongest germplasm banks in the world in the U.S. system, and it is very good, and we've done, uh, we've got great expertise to bring to the table on how to help people improve their systems. Without us having that voice at the table and, and uh, providing good policy direction for that, which everyone around the table wants the U.S. to be there at the table, um, that causes a problem, and it is also a challenge for our breeders here in the U.S. to access germplasm in other places around the world because that system is not set up here in the U.S. yet. So until that happens, um, we, we're going to continue to face a hurdle or a wall there to get access globally. Right now, the treaty is starting to discuss ways to improve the functionality of, of the overall document, how you deal with uh, implementation and commercial access, and those things are important to us. 
uh, to make sure they're handled properly. So we need to be at that table and we need to be dri- driving this overall policy for functionality. How is technology advancing in the seed industry? And is our regulatory system at this point holding back innovation that could bring better seed technology? You know, uh, as we look at that evolution of innovation in the seed industry, we often make a comparison to the evolution that we saw in computing uh, in the 80s and 90s and how rapidly our capacity was changing and our ability to, to put more and more information into a smaller and smaller space. We know more about plants today than we've ever known, and we'll continue to uh, increase that knowledge, Jeff. We are mapping more uh, plant genomes, so we know what makes that plant do what it does. We know where the specific characteristics are that we want to either maximize or possibly minimize because it makes the plant more susceptible. So our breeding techniques are becoming much more laser-focused than maybe shotgun-focused of what some of the the more what people would call conventional breeding methods are. And so what we look at is that real potential to maximize the seed and the seed characteristics that will help farmers improve what they do with hopefully fewer inputs, uh, less impact on the, on the environment and the soil, and increase yield, flavor, oils, uh, quality, any number of things across the plant world. Our concern is that we start to set up systems that are overburdensome and then fewer and fewer groups are able to use it, whether it's our land-grant systems or whether it's our regional seed companies. If it gets to be where uh, governments have gone with respect to GMOs, then we will see very few companies that can access them and very few of our um, varieties, fruits and vegetables, forages and grasses, wheat, that will be able to use those technologies because they will be uh, severely handcuffed in, in putting them into the breeding program. So our concern is that you know let's make sure that whatever policies come out, there's science and risk-based so that we can promote innovation and advancements in breeding. If there is a regulatory system right now, Jeff, it's uncertain to the breeders of how government will treat new techniques like gene editing or things along those lines that really what you're doing is you're either turning uh, a specific characteristic up or turning it off because it makes the plant more susceptible. Uh, and how is the any gov- how would any government policy impact that? And so that government policies do not typically evolve very quickly and science is evolving much more rapidly. And so we're concerned on how things may, if you bring a product to market, how those products will be addressed under policy. How does the American Seed Trade Association see the potential mergers, purchases, arrangements between companies? Is that a concern or is that just a part of doing business? Well, I, I would say it's, it's, it is a concern, obviously, but it's also a part of doing business. Um, there are business reasons why, why companies look to merge, whether they're large or, or just regional companies, to maximize uh, uh, resources, to maximize uh, research programs, those kind of things, and, and market forces drive those. And as we see right now with uh, with pricing in the marketplace, and especially for those commodity crops, uh, it, it has a downward pressure on all of the inputs, as, as you well know. And uh, we, whether you're looking at uh, agrochemicals or you're looking at seed or seed technologies, um, that obviously has downward pressure on the profitability of those companies. And so I think that's where you're seeing the, the biggest impact from the potential mergers that are out there, and 
uh, on the one hand, like I said, concerning, but it's also an, it's probably an, it's inevitable. I think a number of farmers are concerned that consolidation would lead to less competition and less investment in research. I'm not sure you're going to see less investment in research. I think companies are going to continue to drive uh, where they go and um, uh, provide new products. We realize in this business, again, whether it's the agrochemical side or the the uh, seed and seed technology side, we've got to continue to bring you know, different modes of action to the table because Mother Nature's constantly evolving. Uh, and then choices, choice is key. A lot of things are going to impact uh, this ability to have selection and choice out there. And uh, if we properly handle these uh, uh, breeding evolutions and these new techniques that we see, then a lot more companies will be able to use them because they are pretty uh, universal pretty easily accessible. And so things like that are going to, going to change the face of this industry, and that's what you get when, when, with technology and innovation. You also get change in the industry. Andy, we're setting on the threshold of a brand-new year. What do you look forward to with the American Seed Trade Association? Well, there's, there's a lot going on, as you know, in this industry, and we're uh, uh, really excited about the, the evolution of breeding techniques and being able to bring new varieties and new choice to America's farmers and uh, realize the importance of what that does to their production and the decision make that they make uh, every season of what varieties they select. Andy Levine uh, with us of the American Seed Trade Association. The title of the program, Andy, is Open Mic, and, sir, today you get the last word. Well, Jeff, it's a great uh, pleasure to work in this industry, uh, especially for the seed companies. The uh, innovation change that we're seeing is, is just monumental, but the thing that really brings, I think, all of us the pride in what we do is being able to work with America's farmers. So... It's a blessing for us, and uh, we appreciate that opportunity, and hope everyone has a great uh, holiday, of good luck, and a happy new year. Our thanks to Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the Global Harvest Initiative, a private sector policy voice that is forging solutions to feed the world. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.